Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kauten Schabes at the Skizar. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode we are going to continue exploring the saga of Russian Jewry in the 19th century in Tsarist Russia. Uh, last time we spoke about um, the Tsars and the Jews and how that didn't that relationship didn't work out so well. And I discussed uh, the pogroms of 1881 to 1884, the Sufot Banegev, the storms in the south. And in fact, one of the very knowledgeable uh, and dedicated listeners pointed out that that I neglected to mention how the pogroms followed the train routes in Tsarist Russia, and they were distributed. The news about pogroms and how it spread was through the general media routes, how the newspapers were distributed along the train routes. So it's a very important and actually crucial point about how modern technology, the trains and the media, uh, played a decisive role in how the uh, pogroms spread throughout the southern areas of the Russian Empire. Today's topic, I want to discuss the Hasidic movement in Russia. And it's a fascinating topic, it's, uh, and it's, it's what makes it uniquely Russian is a good question. The primary source that I'm using is a fantastic essay by Professors David Asaf and G- uh, Gadi Sagiv in that book that I mentioned earlier about Toldot Yehudei Russia, Volume 2. It's a, really an excellent summary, so I used a lot of that. But of course, there's many, many other sources about the Hasidus in Russia. Listeners sent me sources, and I have to thank them for that as well, for graciously sharing all kinds of sources. And then there's many, many books that discuss uh, Chernobyl and Chabad and all the different Hasidic dynasties in the Russian Empire. The question which is going to define the theme of today is really that the Hasidic movement is born in what later becomes the parts of the Russian Empire, the Pale of Settlement, but that time, obviously, during the time of the Baal Shem Tev and the Magad, it was not yet Russia, it was Ukraine, which was 
part of their, it was part of the Polish kingdom still in the 18th century. And so Hasidus is born in, 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 in this area, which is later Russia, and it remains there until the Holocaust. But the center shifts away from this area. That's an interesting uh, phenomenon. The center shifts to Congress Poland, which is sort of within Russia later, and in and to Galicia. Not so much the Pale of Settlement. Of course, Chabad was very central there, and the, and Rizhin was there until the the Rizhiner escaped uh, Russia, and of course Chernobyl. And there's several smaller dynasties. Breslov, of course, is there. We're going to talk about all these uh, soon. But the Pale of Settlement does doesn't remain the center. Even though it started there and its early years, it really flourished there and it continues to flourish until the Holocaust, but it does, it does not remain the center. So why not? Why isn't the Pale of Settlement the center of the Hasidic movement um, until the end? Um, there is no clear answer, but the story we'll tell today will definitely broaden our understanding of the Hasidic movement in Russia, uh, the Pale of Settlement. Uh, of Russia, and perhaps we'll gain a bit more of an understanding as to the challenges and successes of Hasidus there, and its unique circumstances vis-a-vis the Russian state and the imperial government, and therefore perhaps we'll better understand why um, it was a bit of a challenge for it to remain the center uh, throughout that time, and why it shifted west towards Congress Poland and Galicia. Um, I'm going to focus, in the framework of this episode, I'm going to focus on the Pale of Settlement, not Congress Poland. Now, Congress Poland, like I mentioned in, I think, the first episode, um, when I introduced the topic of Jews in the Russian Empire under the Tsars, is Congress Poland is also, today Central Poland, um, is also part of Russia. It's under the Tsars, but it has a different classification. It's not always considered part of the Pale. Um, It is very often considered part of like this semi-autonomous Polish rule under the Tsars, um, and therefore different laws were applicable to the Jews there at times, um, and uh, and they had kind of like a different trajectory and, and, uh, and... unique circumstances. So therefore, if we would examine the Jews of uh, the Jews and the Hasidim of Congress Poland, it would be somewhat of a different story. So in the framework of today's episode, I'm entirely focusing only on the old Pale of Settlement and not Congress Poland, just so that's clear. So the Hasidic movement obviously precedes the Russian Empire in those areas because the movement spread through the areas of the old Polish kingdom in its last years, before and during and after the partitions of um, uh, of Poland. So there's a few caveats b- before we delve, dive into this topic. Number one, by its very nature, the Hasidic movement was not limited by borders and boundaries. It transcended geographical boundaries and political boundaries. That's That's one of the fundamental ideas of Hasidus, is that it's not limited because you can travel to see the Rebbe. The Rebbe has an impact and influence, sometimes even internationally. And and um, and the the and the ideas spread. Sfarim are sold across borders. Um, and therefore, to say that there's something unique about Russian Hasidus as opposed to Galician Hasidus is is somewhat misleading, meaning the Hasidic movement had a lot in common, much more in common than what separated them. But despite that, we're going to try to find some unique things about 
the Hasidic dynasties in Russia. That's number one. Number two, many, if not most, elements which can be described regarding Hasidim and Russia and their dynasties uh, can be equally applicable to all Hasidic dynasties in other countries as well, which is similar to the first point I made. Number three, um, I'm specifically going to refer to the Hasidic movement in Russia or Hasidus in Russia. I'm not going to call it Russian Hasidus. There's a big difference. It sounds like semantics, but it's it's not. It's not Russian Hasidus. It's not uniquely. It's not. It's it's Hasidim who happen to be living in Russia, right? And actually, the Hasidim, like I said, were there before you know, Russia came to them. Not not that they came to Russia. They didn't immigrate to Russia. The Russian Empire came to them. Um, so it's not really Russian Hasidus. It's Hasidus in Russia. Uh, number four. Like I mentioned before, I'm focusing on the Pale of Settlement and not Congress Poland, which is an important distinction in this context, even though we usually do lump Congress Poland with the Pale. Despite all the above limitations, it's still worth exploring uh, both which Hasidic dynasties flourished in the Pale of Settlement, how they interacted with other segments of the Jewish population there, and how they interacted with the Tsarist government, both local and national, and what, if any, unique elements of their narrative are there to make them a Russian Jewish story uh, within the broader saga of the Hasidic movement? What makes them uniquely Russian? So, first, first of all, the demographics are nearly impossible to measure. We don't know exactly how many Hasidim lived in Russia. We know how many Jews lived in Russia, but there was never a distinction in any census that was between um, uh, Hasidim and non-Hasidim. Uh, it's f interesting, usually we, we assume documentation from that time period is usually better. In this instance, they're awful. Um, there's numbers that are given by Shimon Dubnov and others at the time that are incredible exaggerations. Uh, three million, five million, millions and millions of Hasidim as if no one else existed there. Those are wild exaggerations. So we don't know exactly their numbers, but we know that there were many of them. We try to use rough estimates based upon number of tzaddikim per capita or the number of shtiblach associated with a given dynasty and a host of problematic and partial sources. And where you can use other you know, letters written and yizker books and, and, and all kinds of chronicles like that. And therefore, it gives an approximation of what constitutes a large or small dynasty or community in a given area relative to other larger or smaller dynasties in the same area or different areas. Um, this, is, this is the pioneering research, uh, demographics research by researchers like Marcin Vazinski and, and Dovra Saf and Gadi Sagiv go in that way that many other researchers have followed this approach of trying to build a, an approximation of demographics of the Hasidic movement of specific dynasties. It gets complicated when we try to give an exact number to these things. A lot of times on trips, uh, people ask me, how many religious Jews were there in this country in Europe before the war? It's, it's nearly impossible to quantify because we have no mechanism to quantify it because on censuses they never asked you if you were Shemr Shabbos or not in Poland or Hungary or any of these things. So we have to like estimate how many shuls there were, how many went to religious schools and you know maybe if there were a religious party running in the elections we can assume how many religious Jews and then to, to break it down further within the religious community how many Hasidic Jews there were 
it's nearly impossible to measure. Of course, you have all these people saying, yeah, we had, you know, 100,000 Hasidim of this dynasty and 200,000, as if um, these numbers are actually accurate. But demographics are, are complicated in this context. So, the um, the uh, like I said, it's in the areas of the Polish kingdom, um, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, rather, is the cradle of the Hasidic movement, the areas where the Baal Shem Tev lived and, and flourished and taught and, and inspired, and the Magid of Mizrich, his primary disciple, and both of their many student, many of their students lived in these areas, um, and they were incorporated into the Russian Empire and were included in the boundaries of the Pale of Settlement a few years following their respecting uh, uh, partitions in the mid to late uh, 1700s. I'm sorry, the... the the late 1700s when the partitions were, and this is obviously after the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid had passed away, the Baal Shem Tov passes away in 1760, the Magid in 1772, the year of the first partition. So this was the epicenter of the nascent and spreading, rapidly spreading Hasidic movement during the years of the partitions and the early years of Russian control of that area. So now we would just do an overview summary of which Hasidic dynasties we're talking about. Which ones were there? Which ones, you know, many many Hasidic one, dynasties were in Congress Poland. Many were in Galicia. Later on, there were some in Hungary as well. Um, but we're gonna. But here, what, which ones were in the Pale of Settlement? Um, so let's go district by district. So we have the area of White Russia, the area of what's today um, uh, Eastern Belarus, Central Bel- Belarus. Um, initially, two great students of the Magid of Mizrich, Rabbi Mendel of Vitebsk. Originally, he lived in Minsk, actually, and a Ravrom Kalisker, Kalisk. Um, they were the leaders of the white Russian Hasidim, um, and they were the ones who brought, they were the first leaders there, they were the ones who brought the Hasidic movement to those areas. In 1777, they led a group to Eretz Yisrael, and they settled in Tveria and Sfas, which is definitely a story for uh, another episode. Um, it's worth worth exploring one time. I did speak about it in passing when I spoke about the rise of the Alter Rebbe, the first Rebbe of Chabad, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, then of Liozhna, um, to to leadership. So I ha- talked a little bit about this. Um, so you may want to check out that episode. I'll try to post a link of it, link to it in the uh, in the show notes. Um, they, the Rabbi Nachman of Vitebsk and Rabbi Kalisker attempted to lead their followers in white Russia from afar, from the land of Israel, through letters and emissaries, which was an in, in incredibly creative form of leadership. It didn't work out well, so they eventually appointed from afar. They appointed Rabbi Shneir Zalman, then of Liozhna, later of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe, the Baal Hatanya, and he emerges as the great leader of Hasidim in White Russia, and he's the founder, of course, of the Chabad dynasty. And from this time, from the time, late 1780s, when he's appointed, until the end of the Russian Empire, the Russian Revolution, and even beyond the Revolution, even in communist Russia, these areas of White Russia would predominantly be associated with the Chabad Hasidic dynasty, though there was more than more than one offshoot of the Chabad Hasidic dynasty. Um, now, I want to give a disclaimer right now. This is not meant to be a history of Chabad or the Chabad dynasties or biographies of the great Rebbes or the origins of Chabad, etc., etc., etc. This is meant to be a brief overview of the Hasidic movement in Russia. So I hope that's clear. I'm not going in depth into the story of the Chabad movement 
in, uh, in dynasty in the Russian Empire. When the Alter Rebbe passed away in 1812, there was a succession dispute. Dynastic succession wasn't yet a foregone conclusion in the early stages of the Hasidic movement's history. So it was between the Alter Rebbe's son, Rebbe Daivber, the Mittler Rebbe, and the first one to establish the court in Lubavitch, and the Alter Rebbe's close student, Rebbe Aaron Halevi Horovitz of Strashole, Starashole, um, I hope I pronounced that correctly, which led to a split in in Chabad. Some students followed Rabaran Halevi of Strashole, and the others followed his son, um, the Mittler Rebbe. Um, it later was consolidated under the Mittler Rebbe's son-in-law and grandson of the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Nachman Mendel Schneerson, the famed Tzemach Tzedek of Chabad, the third Rebbe of Chabad, was a very dynamic leader, very charismatic. He was a very strong leader. He led the Hasidim in White Russia in the heyday of Lubavitch, which is also worthy of its own episode one day, the Tzemach Tzedek in his time period. And upon his passing in 1866, the Chabad dynasty was split among several of the Tzemach Tzedek's uh, sons, um, which I covered in an episode way back about the the sons of the Tzemach Tzedek and Kapust and, and other dynasties. They spread their influence across White Russia and well beyond White Russia as well, actually, across the Russian Empire. And there's uh, some branches were more prominent than others. And it definitely got much more consolidated uh, under the strong and charismatic leadership of the fifth rabbi of Chabad Lubavitch, the Rebbe the Rashab, Rabbi Sholem Ber Schneerson, especially following the establishment of the Yeshiva's Taimchei Tmimim in 1897. The uh, researcher Ilya Luria has written extensive works on this topic. They're excellent and worth exploring more in depth at a future time, but there's loads and loads and loads of material. There's loads of books in Hebrew and English and probably other languages too on the history of Chabad and Russia. A fascinating topic in its own merit. The Rashab passed away in 1920 after the revolution, so that kind of brings us through. So White Russia, we already figured out, that's the dominant area of Chabad. Then there's an area of, of, of the Pale of Settlement called Polesia, um, and that's the area of Grudna, today western Belarus and northeastern Poland, possibly parts of, uh, of eastern Lithuania as well. Early Hasidus struggled there. In fact, Rablevi Yitzchak, known as Rablevi Yitzchak of Bardichev, was initially in this area. He was Polizia in, in this area. He was the Rav of Pinsk until he was forced out of his position by the Misnagdim in 1785. So he moved down to Volyn, where it was safer for Hasidim in Ukraine. There was another prominent uh, early Hasidic leader, Reb Chaim Chaikul of Amdur. Um, and he was succeeded by his son, Reb Shmuel of Amdur. But that dynasty petered out after that. It only lasted two generations. So this was a region of very strong opposition from the Misnagdim during the active phase of the opposition to the Hasidic movement during the years 1772 to 1804, which I covered also in an episode. I'll try to post the links to all these uh, um, episodes as review so everyone can get on these subtopics because uh, a lot of these episodes I did years ago, maybe not all of you heard it, and uh, maybe even if you heard it, but you probably, maybe you didn't spread it around to your friends and family, which you should be doing to every episode anyway to, of Jewish History Soundbites. But, um, but I had an episode way back on the the years, these 32 years of the active opposition to the uh, Hasidic movement, 1772 to 1804, one of the most influential misnagdim of this time period was a fellow by the name of Reb David of Makov. He was a Magid. 
And the primary target of his ire, and this comes up in his writings, is this Reb Chaim Chaikel of Amdur. They live nearby. But the more prominent and more long-lasting dynasty in this vicinity, in this province, was, of course, Karlin Stolen. They're a fascinating story. They were initially established by the prominent student of the Magadam Mizrich, Reb Aaron Perlov of Karlin, who was Reb Aaron Hagadol of Karlin. He established his court in his Rebbe in the Magad's lifetime. And um, he succeeded by his student, Reb Shloyma of Karlin, who, who uh, also suffered from the Misnagdim. And he also moved to Volin, to Ludmir, as a result. Unfortunately, he was later murdered in a tragic fashion by a Cossack a few years later. Uh, two of Reb Shloyma of Karlin's students later reestablished themselves back in the Karlin area, in Polizia, in that district. One of them was Reb Aaron Hagadol's son, Reb Asher Perilov, Reb Asher of, of, uh, of uh, Karlin Stalin. And the other one was Reb Mordechai of Lechowitz. And from Lechowitz came three more dynasties in the same geographical area, in the same Polizia Lita area. Kaidanov Hasidim, the Kaidanov dynasty, which lasted until the war, Kobrin, another one, and Slanim, especially after the Yisoyed Ha'avayda um, of Slanim, the first Rebbe of Slanim was very prominent, and the Slanim dynasty was very uh, had a big impact in that area. Um, in fact, Ramesha Feinstein's family was originally from Kaidanov Hasidim, in this area. That's where he came from. He grew up in a town near Minsk. His father left Hasidus when he uh, went to the Yeshiva in Valazhin, but originally Ramesha's family was Kaidanov Hasidim. Um, the, um, so that's, that's that area. Then you have Lithuania itself, which is, of course, also in the Pale. In Lithuania, in Lita, there's not many Hasidim, not much going on. A little bit, there are Hasidic communities, small ones, in Vilna, in Kovna, in Vilkomir, and a few other small towns in that area. All, all of them are in eastern Lithuania. And almost all of them are from Chabad. Um, a little bit from Lechavich, some from Karlin as well. Not a single Hasidic leader or Tzaddik ever settled there. Uh, why? And this is obviously because this was a strong bastion of the Misnagdim. In western Lithuania, or even less, the area what's known as Jamut, there were no Hasidim at all. There were tens, maybe hundreds of towns where not a single Hasid lived, western Lithuania, Jamut, and this was not really a, a result of Misnagdim or opposition. It's much more because of its proximity to Germany and Western Europe and all the values of modernity and the baggage and the Enlightenment, all that proximity that, that came from. So just from observing the geography, it would lead one to the conclusion that it wasn't organized active opposition to the Hasidic movement, which stopped its spread um, uh, uh, um, uh, west, but it was rather the Western Enlightenment which did so. That is all the northern areas of the Pale of Settlement. If we move south to the cradle of the birthplace of the movement, Ukraine, the areas of Kiev, Volyn, Podolia, and this was the beginning, this is where it flourished, and this is where it never really faced any serious opposition either. Some tzaddikim who lived in these areas did not have courts, they didn't have proper courts or succession or dynasties or anything like that, like Reb Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev is a more famous one, Reb Zev Wolf of Zhutomir, the Arameir, is another one, uh, a grandson of the Baal Shem Tov named Reb Moshe Chaim Ephraim of Sodilkov, the Degel Machane Ephraim was another one, his brother did establish a court, his brother uh, was named Reb Baruch of Tulchin, later Reb Baruch of Mezhebizh, 
He established actually the first regal court. He pioneered the concept of the regal court, the Derech HaMalchus. He was quite a character in his own right. That's for another time. But he didn't really have a succession. It didn't form a long-lasting dynasty. He, uh, he had long and regular disputes with many of the other leading tzaddikim of his day, especially with the Alter Rebbe. Like I said, it's a big story. The two largest, most influential, and longest-lasting dynasties in Ukraine were by far the Rizhin and Chernobyl dynasties. So regarding Chernobyl, I did a two-part series on Chernobyl way back. You can reference that, and I'll try to post the links to that as well. Um, Reb Nachum of Chernobyl, the Ma'are Naim, he establishes the dynasty as a student of both the Baal Shem Tev and the Magadim Mizrich, but it really came to dominance under the leadership of his son, the Chernobyl or Magad, or of Matchatorsky of Chernobyl, then split into eight different branches upon his passing among his sons, with each one establishing a dynasty, all in Ukraine, all in that area. Um, Rizhin was established by Rabbi Sorel Friedman of Rizhin, the Heiliger Rizhiner. He's a great grandson of the Magadim is rich. I don't think that Jewish history soundbites has done something on him and his dynasty, but we definitely have to because he was one of the most interesting leaders in the history of the Hasidic movement. He was arrested by the Tsarist police around 1836 due to a whole story of a murder story in Oshitz, which he was falsely accused of being connected to. So he spent quite some time in prison, a few, like two or three years in prison. And upon his release, he decided to leave Russia for good. In 1842, he smuggled himself across the border into Austria, and he reestablished his court in Sadiger. And so it became Rizhin Sadiger. So here we have a fascinating phenomenon, and it's the first time it had ever taken place in the history of the Hasidic movement, that we move an entire court, lock, stock, and barrel, across an international border. But here, it gets tricky. Because even though ostensibly he and the continuation of his dynasty is in Austria, but most of his followers remained in Russia. So, and so they would remain for the rest of the century. Um, so he and his successors who are in Austria, they keep in touch with their Hasidim across the border in Russia. And the Hasidim steal across the border to Austria to make a pilgrimage to whatever Rebbe of the dynasty that they belong to, that they associate with first to the originator himself and then later to his sons, because upon his passing in 1850, he too was succeeded by all of his sons, and the dynasty more or less, more or less, amicably split into several prominent branches, Sadiger, Charkiv, Bohush, Stefanesh, Osiat, and Biyan in the second generation, and more. Later on, Kapishnitz, there are more. Um, so if we take together collectively these two huge dynasties, Chernobyl and Rizhin, were connected many times over through marriage, a lot of intermarriage between the two dynasties, and were also similar in many ways as well. Both implemented the approach of organizing the physical court, the chatzar of the Hasidus, as in a derech hamalchus, the regal court, that was much more associated with Rizhin than it was with Chernobyl. They also, both of them had a more pragmatic approach to modernity than their, their than other Hasidic dynasties, especially relative to Galicia. In fact, if we would compare the Russian Hasidus is of Chernobyl and, uh, and Rizhin um, in their approach to modernity. If we would, uh, c- compare them to the Galician or Hungarian Hasidic courts, we would say we would consider them modern. We would uh, you know would say that they had you know they obviously weren't modern. They weren't liberal. They were Hasidim. They were very conservative. But um, 
but uh, compare relative to the uh, the the Tsans and and uh, other Galician dynasties, Bells, other Galician dynasties and Hungarian dynasties, the Russian ones had a more, I would call it, pragmatic approach to modernity. Both of them, both Rizhin and Chernobyl, also had a similar method of multiple succession. The two, these two dynasties, with their many branches, dominated Ukraine until World War I. But there were several other smaller ones as well. Apta, which was based in Mezhebizh, descendants of the Aptarov. Uh, Kapishnets came from them too, and they are connected to Rizhin. Um, Savran, the Savran or Hasidic dynasty, was established by Reb Meishetzvi Guterman and his descendants. Um, they were famous for being um, very, very, v- almost violent uh, opponents of um, of Breslov, especially in the time of Reb Nachman's uh, student, Reb Nassan of Nemerev. There's the Linitz dynasty. There's several other smaller ones from the progeny and students of Rabbi Chil Michal, the Zlotch of Ramagid. All of them were in Volin. And then there's Breslov, which is really its own story. Breslov is also in Ukraine. Um, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, and he establishes the Hasidus. And then later on, um, he's not succeeded by Rabbi Nassim of Nemerev because there's no succession there. But the leader of the of the community, kind of, is Rabbi Nassim of Nemerev. Um, and Breslov is a fascinating story because, first of all, they're a Hasidic dynasty without a continuation, without a a succession uh, in place, um, and that's what they were nicknamed in those areas, the Toiter Hasidim, the dead Hasidim. I'm actually amazed that we've never done an episode on Reb Nachman and on Breslov because we could probably do 10. I even have sponsors for it. People have offered it. They want it. I just never got around to doing it because you have to do it right. So hopefully we got to do it soon. But what I want to mention in the context of Ukraine and Hasidus is that, first of all, they face a lot of opposition. Reb Nachman in his own lifetime, primarily from the Spoiler Zayda, also a, a prominent uh, Hasidic leader in Ukraine during this time. In Reb Nassim of Nemerov's lifetime, it came from Reb Tzvi of Savran, like I mentioned before. And then later on, in the third generation of Breslov, it came from the... Chernobyler dynasties, mainly from Skver and from Tolna, or David of Tolna, his Hasidim, they were also quite uh, opposed to, uh, in fact, the term Misnagdim in Breslov tradition doesn't mean the Litvish Misnagdim, it doesn't even mean the Maskilim, who are sometimes referred to as Misnagdim to the Hasidic movement, it actually means other Hasidim, that's that's the Misnagdim in Breslov tradition, <laughs> interesting. But um, what's, it, what's fascinating is, about, is that Breslov is strong and established, but very, very small. There are only a few hundred uh, families for from the time of Reb Nachman, from the early 1800s, till probably 40 years ago. In other words, all the time that they're in Russia, all the time that they're in Ukraine, in the Tsarist Empire, they're, they're tiny. And yet they persevere, and they all this, and then they burst onto the Jewish scene, and they explode, uh, uh, you know, about 40-something years ago, 40, 50 years ago, which is another fascinating uh, story probably more sociological and historical, but maybe we'll get to Breslov in, in depth one day. Uh, moving on, we have another um, a small, small community, small dynasty, Berbefal of Bershad, the Bershad Hasidus. And in, in fact, the Bershad is similar to Breslov in the respect that they are also no succession. And they continue, they continue for about a century. And throughout the 19th century, so Bershad is, is, is another example of a Hasidus that doesn't have a Rebbe, and they continue despite the fact that they're not led by a charismatic leader. Another area of the Pale of Settlement is Bessarabia. Bessarabia, later on it's part of Romania, but for most of 
but until the, until after World War One, it's in Russia. Um, from the Napoleonic Wars until after World War One, it's in Russia. Mostly, the Hasidim who lived there are Chernobyl uh, and the and from the Rizhin and Sadiger branches. There is a little influence from Savran. There's also influence, interestingly enough, from a mayor of Premishlan, which is Galicia altogether. It's not even from Russia. There's um, local small ones, Benderi, Rashkov, also one of the early, uh, very famous Sadikim of the Hasidic uh, uh, movement from Hasidic history, Reb Chaim Tirer of Chernovitz, who wrote important Hasidic works, the Be'er Ma'im Chaim, this is the Rachel Shabbos. Eventually he moves to Tzfas, and my tours of Tzfas, we go to his kever. Um, also, there's a Chabad influence in Bessarabia. Later on, this became Romania, like I said. Now, what about southern Russia, new Russia, the areas that Russia conquered from the Ottoman Empire? So in these areas, there's not many Hasidim. Whoever is there, it's primarily Chabad. This is the south and the new Russia. The early Chabad Rebbes, they sent, the Mittler Rebbe, the Tzemach they sent their Hasidim to establish, to work in agricultural colonies, the Kolonias, it's called in, Hasid, in Chabad tradition. And, uh, and there are many Chabad Hasidim who settled down there in the areas of southern Russia, in the New Russia, which is also considered part of the Pale of Settlement. There's also Hasidim who lived outside of the Pale, in St. Petersburg and Moscow, but very few, not many. Um, one of the famous uh, Hasidic leaders in the, uh, in, the, in the New Russia was Chabad Mashpia, or Shliach, whatever you want to call him, half a Rebbe, they even call him a Halba Rebbe, they call him, or a Tzadik, Reb Hill of Parich, Reb Hill Paricher. A fascinating figure, also a good story. Um, and then here's another interesting story, not from Chabad, Rabbi Tzachiel Rabinovich was a Hasidic leader from the Linitz dynasty, and in the 1860s he was exiled by the uh, Tsarist government to Kherson, which is in southern Russia, and he became the first actual Rebbe to settle in New Russia, and practically the only one to do so. In the 1890s, Rabbi Zusha Tversky of Trisk also lived in the Kherson area for a few years um, at that time. So you have, um, you have um, all these um, many dynasties living in Russia, many Hasidim living in Russia, and there's all different succession mechanisms. Sometimes it goes to a child, sometimes it goes to all the children, sometimes it goes to a student, sometimes it goes to both, sometimes, sometimes to no one, as in the case of Breslov, and sometimes dynasties disappear. And there's also very often fights between dynasties and disputes within dynasties as well. There's also another interesting phenomenon, which you have, uh, I think I may have mentioned this in the uh, episode I did on Hasidic Mashpiyim. Um, you have people like Rabbi Avram Doiv of Avrich, the, the, the Basayan, or Rabbi Yisrael Doiv of Lednik, who are both students of the Chernobyl or Magid. And they are uh, almost like Rebbes or Abanim in their own right, Hasidic leaders, but they didn't establish a dynasty and they didn't come from any dynasty. They were students of the Chernobyl Magad, or like I mentioned, of Hill of uh, Parich. Um, um, the the uh, Hill Parich is under the auspices of the central cordon Lubavitch, but he's down in the agricultural colonies, dispatched there by the Rebbe, by the Lubavitch Rebbe, in New Russia. So he becomes in that area kind of like uh, a leader. Um, the, a unique Russian style of the court is uh, what I mentioned before in passing, the Chatzar HaMalchus, the Derech HaMalchus, the regal way. Rizhin uh, is most associated with this, uh, with, this, with this way, to a certain extent also Chernobyl, to a certain extent also Karlin uh, was like that as well, to a certain extent. It was pioneered even before Rizhin by Rebarchal of Mezhbiz, I mentioned. Not only is it unique to Russia, meaning only 
dynasties in Russia had this regal court. Hasidic courts outside of Russia, it was pretty much non-existent. Not only that, but in Galicia, where Rizhin re-established itself in Sadiger, it faced fierce opposition from the Devri Chaim of Tzans. He did not like the regal way. He felt it was inappropriate for Hasidic uh, leaders to behave in that way, and that was uh, one of the components of his famous dispute with Sadiger. What is the regal way? The regal way is a physical court that is very regal, very royal, very much modeled on the Polish aristocracy, the Russian uh, aristocracy, um, you know, a large palace and a large beautiful base medrush and servants and regal clothing and, 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 and kitchens and stables for the horses and chariots and all that. And all this because the rabbi, the tzaddik, is the manifestation of a certain type of melech, of, 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 and, and it's a way to connect to the tzaddik. And, you know, the philosophy and the ideology behind it is definitely something to explore in its own merit, which we'll, perhaps we'll do. Um, and it was, it was a very important component of the Aveda of the Hasidus in these dynasties. So, but the, what, what's, what the physical characteristics of it were quite striking. And, and later on in the 19th century, because of the terrible poverty in, in the Russian Empire, there was a certain decline of the regal courts. And then it became totally extinct in World War I, although it was taken up by others. Uh, who do not come from uh, the Russian Ch Hasidic dynasties. And uh, it was taken up by them to a certain extent in the 20th century, it kind of spread to Galician and Hungarian uh, Hasidic uh, uh, style in, in our own days. Um, the the, the uh, Hasidim in Russia, like Hasidim in Galicia and Congress Poland, this is not unique to Russia, there was the court itself and then the shtetl, where the Hasidim lived. And in the shtetl they established... Stiebels and Kleisen, and they had the Hasidic way of life in the shtetl across the Pale of Settlement, with a pilgrimage to the court. Most of the century, it was by horse and buggy or walking. And later on, when trains finally made it to Russia, so they were able to uh, get there a little easier. Very often, what you had was, as David of Tolna was famous for this, the Rizner himself was famous for this, the Rebbes would travel around to the Hasidim. And that helped also for the connection between the Rebbe and his Hasidim. It also helped for the funding of the court. Fundraising was easier that way. There were certain taxes that were voluntary taxes that anyone who wanted to be associated with the Hasidim paid these taxes. And there was a unique approach to, of the Chernobyl dynasty, the various branches, Tolna and, and Skver and, 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 and Trisk and all these other um, uh, uh, branches of the Chernobyl uh, Chernobyl dynasty of control over the countryside of different shtetls, of, of, of territorial claims, of kind of like conquering towns, which Rebbe has jurisdiction over these towns, these shtetls, they were very often formalized in contracts as a ksav magidus. In other words, the Rebbe would be in charge of hiring all the klikaidish, the rabbi, the dayan, the Rebbe, the malamed, the shaykhet, the... Uh, um, the Reish HaKohol, the taxing worked that way to help support the court and the institutions of the of the Hasidus. Um, Russian Hasidus is also unique in the respect that, in on one hand, uh, in as far as their writing and publishing, in the, on one hand you have Chabad, which is the greatest writing and publishing of any Hasidic dynasty till today. On the other hand, you have Rizhin and Chernobyl, which did not write much. They did not publish a lot of writings at all, almost nothing. And then you have, on the third hand, you have something like Breslov, which there's this flourishing of publishing by Reb Nassim of Nemer, of, of Reb Nachman's writings, in his private illegal printing press that he maintained, but very little after that. Um, 
Interesting, when I do the tours of Tzfas, um, irony that I point out, I don't know, the connection of Tzfas or the land of Israel in general to specifically the Russian Hasidus. If you go to the, the old Hasidic shtibles, you have the many, the, you have Sephardic shuls, beautiful old Sephardic shuls there, but if you look at the t- small little Hasidic shtibles there, almost all of them in the Tzfas old city are associated with these Russian Pale of Settlement uh, Hasidic dynasties. Predominantly Chernobyl, Chernobyl, Trisk, um, uh, Makarov, and uh, and uh, um, Tolna, and uh, probably forgetting a, a few. Then you have a Chartka, which is Rizhen, which is Russian, and you have um, uh, uh, Chabad, Breslov. Almost all of them are Russian. The main exception, you have the Basayan Shtibel, which is Russian, of course, the Basayan himself. Um, the main exception to this rule is Tsans, of course. It's a Galician uh, Shtibel. That's a large and prominent one. The Shinever himself, the son of the Rechaim, opened it when he visited uh, Eretz Yisrael in 1869. And then there's Vizhnitz also, which today is a Svartic Shul. Vizhnitz Tunis, another story. But um, so Vizhnitz, Vizhnitz kind of comes from Russia also, even though it's a Romanian Hasidus, but it, it comes originally from from uh, Rizhen and, and Russia and Ukraine somewhere. Um, but um, but it's interesting that the connection of to the land of Israel, to, to Tzfas specifically, is primarily not from Galicia or Hungary or Congress Poland, but primarily from Russia. The, another story here that we have is the Russian Tsarist government and the Hasidic movement. In this realm, in this aspect of the narrative, this is the most differences, naturally, understandably so, between Hasidim in Russia and other countries. What was the relationship between Hasidim and the Tsarist government? Um, and, that is, and that is a great story as well. Early stages, there actually was a liberal attitude from the Russian government towards the Hasidic movement, which allowed Hasidus to flourish in Russia during the early years, because the government was very interested in weakening the power of the Kahal, of the Jewish autonomy. So permitting the Hasidic movement to flourish, permitting additional minyanim, permitting shuls, permitting their uh, different customs and different tax systems and different shechita separate from the Kahal was beneficial as far as the government was concerned, because it weakened the Jewish autonomy, the internal Jewish autonomy, which is what the goal of the Tsar's government was. And it also assisted the Hasidim greatly, as it essentially legalized the Hasidic movement. During the active phase of the opposition to the Hasidic movement, informing to the new government on the other party was utilized as a mechanism to fight the other party. So, informing, Moiser, being a Moiser. In this context, we can point to out something quite interesting regarding this time period of the Hisnagdus between 1772 and 1804, which is generally overlooked. I think this point is overlooked usually. Vilna, the center, the hotbed of the opposition because of the Vilna Gain, because he spearheaded it, he initiated it. So the Vilna Gain, uh, Vilna was only annexed as Russian territory with the third partition in 1795. Now most of white Russia, where the Hasidim were, was already in 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 Russia by the first partition in 1772, which coincidentally is also the year of the Magid's passing, as well as the beginning of the organized active opposition to the Hasidic movement. The first cherems, the first excommunications of the Hasidic movement were in 1772. That means that between the years 1772 and 1795, the Hasidim of White Russia and Vilna, where the opposition ones, were two different countries. Um, so... In 1795, Vilna is incorporated into Russia with the third partition of Poland. So now, for the first time, 
the misnagdim can tattle to the authorities about the Hasidim. And they proceeded to do so. And the Alter Rebbe ends up in jail twice. And he's later acquitted, he's vindicated. Um, the, the, so again, that, that couldn't have happened before 1795 because Vilna was outside of Russia and the Hasidim primarily were in White Russia, so they were already in Russia. So they didn't use informing to the Russian government before 1795 because you couldn't have. That's an interesting point. Now the Russians, again, to weaken the autonomy of the Kahal, banned corporal punishment. The Kahal was not allowed to beat um, members of the Kahal for all kinds of infractions, which they did for centuries. And they also banned excommunication. The Kahal was not allowed to use the Kherim anymore. It was illegal. So for an autonomous entity, the Kahal, it was illegal to implement corporal punishment and cherem, and excommunication. So this removed the two main weapons from the Misnagdim against the Hasidim. They removed the power that they had. And that's another reason the Misnagdim turned to informing at this point, because they needed a new weapon. The, the, the excommunication was illegal. Um, but it was mutual, by the way. The Hasidim used the informing weapon as well. They informed on each other. It was, uh, was Freilach. Rabbi Victor of Pinsk, uh, uh, the Rav of Pinsk, becomes a big part of this story as well, which is another, I think I mentioned it last time, when I spoke about the opposition to the Hasidic movement, especially regarding involving the Tsarist government, because he went to the government a few times. The main crime one could be accused of at this time was sending money to the Ottoman Empire meaning Eretz Yisrael, the Hasidim in Eretz Yisrael. So that instigated the second arrest of the Alter Rebbe. But the Hasidim, having been acquitted, they now felt more confident in their relationship with the new Tsarist government, and they informed on the Misnagdim. They informed on the heads of the Kahal of Vilna to the Russian government. And some of these heads of the Kahal in Vilna were removed and replaced with Hasidim. So here's another unknown fact. For several years, around the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries, the Kahal of Vilna was controlled by Hasidim. So uh, that's a fascinating tidbit as well. The 1804 legislation regarding the Jews of the Russian Empire, like I said, benefited the Hasidic movement. The authorities, the Russian authorities, were not that knowledgeable as to the internal Jewish nuances between Hasidim and non-Hasidim. They referred to all of the Hasidim in the early days as Karlinim. In the old Russian documents, all Hasidim are referred to as Karlinim. They thought that Karlin were the, uh, were the only... Uh, were the Hasidim. Uh, the last point to mention about the quote-unquote good relationship between the Hasidim and the Tsarist government is the Napoleonic Wars, and especially the behavior of the Alta Rebbe. He was loyal to the Russian government and against Napoleon, and he exiled with the Russian army during Napoleon's invasion in 1812, which I spoke about in that early episode as well. Now, but obviously, things were not rosy, and they were not all rosy between the Tsar and his government and the Hasidim. The Hasidim had to be, they started to get politically organized, even in the early days, the Alter Rebbe and Rebbe Yitzchak and other great leaders, they had meetings to discuss what to do with the different decrees. They also learned to join forces with non-Hasidic leaders, especially later on in the century, the Tzemach Tzedek and Rebbe Tzedek um, during the, uh, the 1843 conference um, uh, in, in St. Petersburg, uh, when, the, when the Tsar Nicholas's government wanted to implement educational reform, um, the things changed for the worse in the 1830s. There's three points to mention in this context. Number one, 1830s is already the reign of Nicholas the First, Tsar Nicholas I, who's considered the ultimate bad guy for the Jews of Russia. Number two, the rise of the Russian Haskala and their, combat, their combative uh, opposition to the Hasidic community, um, including uh, the Haskala, which included in this is the Haskala and their 
in their relationship with the Tsarist government. In other words, the Tsar wants to implement reforms, and they see the Russian Jewish Haskalah as partners in this endeavor. And number three, the specific story that I mentioned earlier of 1836, that murder in Oshitz, and the Tsarist government accused the police, uh, accused Rabbi Yisrael of Rizhin, the Rizhin of being involved, and that this is the first time that Hasidim are singled out as a problem. And this is followed by a number of Tsarist decrees, which were immortalized in Hasidic literature by the name of the Gzeira. There's the Gzeira's Hadfus, which uh, closes down all Jewish printing in the Russian Empire. There's the Gzeira's Hamalbush, except in two places, in Zhitomir and Vilna, until later on, later on, many years later, they were allowed to reopen. More printing presses were allowed to open. There's the Gzeris Hamalbushim, which was a decree against Jewish dress. There was the Gzeris Hatzadikim, 1865 to the late 1890s. The Tzadikim in Ukraine, primarily of the Chernobyl dynasty, were not allowed to travel. It was illegal for them to travel. There's a whole issue with, uh, with that as well. There's the Gzeris Hagerish. There was, Jews were being expelled from rural areas. Um, and each one, the Hasidic movement and their leaders had to contend with. Hasidim in Russia had to confront modernity as well, as far as the government and their reforms, as far as the Russian Haskalah, who were bitter enemies of the Hasidic movement in Russia. And then later on in the century, urbanization, industrialization, um, education becomes a response to that. That's Taimchei and other educational initiatives from the Hasidic movement in Russia to try to stem the tide of modernity and all its challenges, and eventually politics as well, when Hasidim join political movements or establish religious political movements in Russia. Most Hasidic leaders in Russia were opposed to Zionism, and they're also opposed to immigration to the United States, and they're also opposed to the revolutionary movements and socialism. In other words, all the hot topics of late 19th century Russia, they were opposed. So they were losing the youth, and there was great secularization going on, and the grinding poverty and persecution didn't help matters much. So Hasidic leaders in the late 19th century in Russia had diminished influence. And another fascinating thing to note is that aside from Chabad, who are, of course, the big exceptions to this rule, they are great leaders on the national and even international scale. But besides for Chabad, uh, all Russian tzaddikim and Hasidic leaders of the late 19th and early 20th centuries did not really involve themselves in national leadership or national po politics or representing Klaus Yisrael and dealing with the Tsar's government. Chabad was the only one who did that in Russia. And of course, Litvak, I'm talking about within the Hasidic movement. Um, and in Galicia and Congress Poland, many Hasidic, Hasidic leaders did that did that too. But um, in, in the Pale of Settlement, um, the Chernobyl and other uh, Hasidic leaders did not do that. They kind of like hunkered down and focused on their spirituality and their own community's welfare, which is kind of like a sign of the times. Um, and then uh, with World War I and the Russian Revolution and the rise of the Soviet Union, this of course transforms the landscape of the Hasidic movement in Russia dramatically and forever. Um, so I will try to post some of the links to the other older episodes that are related to this topic. And this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.